this is absolutely probably, at least as far as the lessons I've taught from the book of James, the heaviest lessons, some of the strongest language. Um, and James is straightforward, and we've heard this the whole time. He's kind of just come right at us and dealt with issues that the Jews were <laughs> that they were just making these mistakes he's trying to straighten them out and then I go to study for this and and I start reading it and I'm like man I mean I don't know if it's going to work its way up and by the time we get to the very last lesson it's going to be so heavy whoever's teaching could barely stand up here maybe but this lesson right here is one that uh that's pretty important we, we're going to read and James is going to help these guys to understand if you, has anybody read James chapter 4, 1 through 6 recently? This is so good. No one's read it recently. Okay. He is going to give to the Jews and to us this morning the very core reason, the very core reason for all sin, for all evil acts, for Everything that is done outside of the will and purpose of God, He is going to give us the cause for that. So the good news about that is, is we can listen to today's lesson and we'll be able to walk away knowing exactly where these things originate. And hopefully, we'll be able to conquer those things so that we don't have to deal with them the way that the Jews are here with James. So we're in James chapter 4, 1 through 6. He asks them a question in the first, very first verse. He says, from whence come wars and fightings among you? So we know from just studying the epistles and knowing how the writings work that the letters that are being written by James, by Paul, and by others are written for a purpose. They're not just trying to pick something that they think somebody's dealing with and just throw out a thought to help correct and guide them. But he is commenting on something that he knows has taken place among the Jews. He knows that apparently somewhere among them there's fightings and there's wars. And so he's asking them a question, a clear question. Where do these things come from? It's like if you're going through something in your life and you're facing something and, and your friends are around you and they're seeing you struggle. They're seeing you go through these things and, and you'll have a friend and he'll try. He'll work up a little bit of courage to come and to talk to you and just try to help you out. But so many times, man, it's so easy to avoid the true subject. You know, have you ever tried to counsel somebody or talk to a friend and say, hey, um, you know, if you haven't seen him at church for a while, you may come across real easy and say, well, I haven't seen you for a while. How are you doing? Things, things going okay? And that's about as deep as you get. But really, if you knew more than that and the friend wasn't giving up any more information, you could come across like James and you could just call him and say, hey, so we know you were hanging out at the movies all night the last three Saturdays and you've missed church in the morning. What do you think the cause of that is, man? Why are you doing that? And that's how, that's how confrontational James is when he's getting into chapter 4 here. He's not just coming across and trying to deal with the broad subject. He's saying, I know that you are doing these things. Now let me ask you a question. What do you think's causing these things? Now here's where I had a lot of trouble. <clears throat> because in reading this, in the following verses, I wanted to try to figure out the context historically. And I read and I went through different commentaries and different historians' books and was looking at what they were saying was taking place. And, and there was two or three of them that agreed on something. And then about 1 o'clock, no, what time was it, Brother Kilman? 10 or 30, 11? Don't, don't worry, we'll just call it 11 o'clock. 
So about 11 o'clock when I'm finished with this lesson and I'm ready to come teach it today, I just think, well, you know what? Let me just text Brother Kilman, tell him what these three or four writers said, and let me just see if there's any reason why I should not trust this opinion. And what do you think he said? So it's 11 o'clock at night, and he says, well, that's an awfully big circle there. I don't know. And he said, you should probably check out, and he sends me a link that's 72 pages long and says, uh, you should probably check this out. I think he got this subject pretty well understood. And so there we are, 1.30 a.m., and I'm still tired and trying to figure out exactly what I agree with and, and what I don't agree with. But thank you, Brother Kilman, for within five minutes of one text, shooting me 72 pages or 74 pages, whatever it was, so that I could take a look at that. So that's what I struggled with, the historical context of what was going on. And what I found that we could agree with, that everybody was saying was pretty much true, is that at this time, the Jews were definitely scattered abroad. We know that. James wrote the letters to the Jews that were scattered. But the new convert Jews. But what we are finding out is these guys had so many issues, man. They were struggling I mean, struggling to the point of it would be hard for me to ever think that these guys were believers. And that James writing a letter to, to somebody that has been converted and experienced the power of the Holy Ghost. But there's a lot of strife among them. They're starting to deal with, uh, they're having troubles, they're fighting with one another. They're fighting with people who are trying to oppress them. Uh, the Romans, they're, they're causing trouble with the heathens, those that will not be converted. And they're even finding fault amongst one another. And so we find them in this circle, and they're fighting against each other. It's like, be, well, you know, it's, it wouldn't be hard to understand, I don't think. We live in a big, we go to a big church. You have a big church, and you have people that are supposed to be of like precious faith, and, and yet you still find these groups or these cliques, and then you find people arguing with one another and, and causing contention with one another and, and, and just trying to bring one another down instead of encouraging each other. Now, you don't find that all the time. This is a wonderful church, but in big churches or any time you find people, you are able to see something like this. And it's taking place here. The Jews are just, they're just completely, in my opinion, falling apart. And they're acting out in all kinds of ways. And because of those things, they've got these fightings and these wars and all this stuff going on. And so this is what James is dealing with. And that's the historical context of where they're at. Back. No one saw that, right? Okay. Well, back, all the way back. So what would you think? I want, somebody to, I want someone to tell me what you would think. If there's fighting, let's just narrow it down. Let's make it broader. If you're dealing with things, you're having troubles, strife, conflicts. You're doing things you shouldn't be doing. You're outside of the will of God. All of these things are going on, and you're supposed to be a believer. You've been converted. You've felt God's presence, and here you are dealing with these issues. And then someone comes to you, and they ask you. They say, hey, look, Brother Tony, why do you think this is going on? Why do you think this is going on? So tell me, what did you think? If you, no one's read this recently. Everyone kept their hands down. If you did read it and you just didn't want to raise your hand, don't cheat and give the answer. Brother Kilman, what did you do that for? Keep your hand down. Okay. Somebody, let me hear somebody. Just shout something out. What do you think would cause these things? Lack of prayer? Selfishness? That's a good answer. So that would cause some trouble. Lack of prayer, selfishness. Anything else? Somebody being puffed up. Prideful. Being puffed up. Somebody else. Brother Titus. You do it because you want to. Whew. That's pretty heavy right there. I don't want to carry that around too long. Uh, anybody else? 
Come on, there's no wrong answer. I go, I guess there could be a wrong answer. But there's a lot of right answers. So, so somebody else just throw out an answer. Let me hear one more. One more. I'm not going on until I get one more. Agreed. Okay. We'll accept all of those. Those are all very good answers. Here is what James says. Come they not hence even of your lusts that war in your members. So why are you guys fighting? Why are you outside of God's plan and His will? It's because you've got an internal fight going on. You've got a war. The fight is between the carnal nature of the Christian, his evil desires, his passions, his desire for pleasure, and between the Spirit of God who dwells within him. Brother Titus, I think you were right on when you said that because this is what it boils down to. They are falling outside of what God wants because they want to. Because they've got these passions in themselves, these desires within themselves that they want to conquer. They want things. They're greedy. They want to obtain possessions for themselves and to make them feel important. They're lustful. They're, they're just trying to seek all of these things for themselves. And why are they seeking these things? Why are you fighting? You're fighting to gain them. You're warring so that you can gain them. And you're, all of this is happening because you desire it. Because you want it. Now that, in my opinion, is as heavy as it gets. So what are you saying? James, what are you telling us? Tell us straight. Well, I'm trying to be straight. It sounds pretty straight. He's saying that it's you. It's the war inside of you that's causing these things. Let's look forward a little bit here. Let's look at what Paul says. Paul gives us a really transparent view of himself dealing with this in Romans chapter 7. I'm going to read it here. It says, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will, for to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would do, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that, I would not. It is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. Find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that when my mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. Paul is making something very clear to us. Some people would not even want to, to put themselves in a place like this, and yet Paul wrote it down so that we could see it. He's saying that, listen, if I act in and within myself and my flesh, I'm acting in sin. There's no way to get around that. If I'm not acting in the Spirit, if I'm not acting according to God, then I'm acting out of myself. And when I act out of myself, I'm acting in sin. So we find right here just the basis and the core for everything that is coming that's going to fall apart in our lives. So why did you do that? Why would you... Uncontrolled passions and desires in the hearts of individuals are the source of every evil act that has ever taken place. Murder takes place because of passions and desires in our hearts. Child molestations take place because of desires and passions in the person committing the act's heart. Theft, stealing, robbery takes place because somebody has a desire within their heart to obtain those things. Murders, everything that you can think of that is sinful and evil takes place right inside of here. It's built right in here. So we say, 
You can't blame the enemy nor the world. It's you that desires the world. For Demas has forsaken me, this is Paul, having loved this present world. There is something within us that allows us to choose. So the battle's inside, it's internal. The conflict, it's going on, it's, it's raging inside of us. And you get to make the decision, it's up to you. But if you choose to follow your flesh, if you choose to follow after this world, there is no one left to blame but you. Now you say, man, if they didn't place that pornography online, there's no way I would look at it. And, and if Victoria's Secrets didn't have these huge windows, and if the magazines wasn't stacked right by the outcheck line, then there's no way I would look at it. Well, true, I understand that, but this world is wicked and is a believer, a spirit-filled person. It is up to you. The wars in here, you decide. This is what the Jews were dealing with. They were given over to that. They were not willing to say, I will take accountability. I will fight for me within myself. I was playing golf the other day, which I never do, and I'm no good at. So, we're having a lot of fun. Really, we're having a lot of fun because one of the other guys is horrible too. And the guy that's good, he's kind of on his own cart going everywhere chasing the balls that we hit and getting them for us. And so, it was really a lot of fun. But we're, we end up and we're on the fairway, right, Josh? That's what the green, the straight fairway. We're on the fairway, and I get out of my cart, and I say, well, what should I hit it with? We're all kind of near each other, and he says, hit it with the seven iron. Well, now, apparently, the iron you choose, the lower the number, should project your ball further. Is that right, Josh? Okay. So, he said, hit it with a seven. I said, well, I don't have a seven. <clears throat> he had a seven. He didn't let me borrow it. Neither did he offer. But he said, well, well, then hit it with the six. And I said, well, why not the eight? He said, I told you to hit it with the six. I said, okay. So I get the six out. I, I line up, and I don't know, we're maybe on hole 14. I haven't hit a good hit yet. It's only like 130 yards or something like that away. And I hit it, and the ball goes in the air. You know how good that is when you hit a golf ball and it leaves the ground? This happened for me, okay? Listen, it's in the air. And it's going directly towards the green. All right? And I'm getting excited. They're getting happy. And then I start to realize, uh-oh, it's going over the green. And so my best hit all day is now ruined, I say, because he told me to use a six. So I get in the golf cart, put my club up. I'm a little upset, very disappointed. I'm telling the guy next to me, I'm like, can you believe that joker told me to hit it with a six? And so I'm going on and on, and I'm just complaining and, and just riling on this guy. And, and he looks at me, he says, he says, man, who hit the ball? I said, I, said, I hit the ball. He said, well, shut up. <laughs> this is what he says to me. I consider this guy somewhat of a friend. And what he was saying is that you hit the ball, man. You need to just man up and understand that you did it. Now, if you want to do better next time, you do a little bit of study and a little bit of preparation and figure out for yourself which club you should have hit with. But don't blame the guy that was trying to help you. And James is telling them, at this point, you've got nobody that you can blame. And let me tell you this, if you've ever fallen or made a mistake, it is so much better and sweeter when you can blame somebody else. Is that right? Man, if you're driving and, and somebody swerves in your lane... And then you have to swinge all the way over to stop from the wreck. And then you can start yelling at them through your windshield. And you just feel it was their fault. Now it's totally different 
When you're driving and you look down to send a text message when you shouldn't be, and you swerve over into somebody else's lane, they're honking and blowing their horn. Oh, that feeling is completely different. So when you've got nobody to blame, nobody to blame, it's, it's just a different world. And this is what James was trying to get them to understand just right from the beginning. This is inside of you. You can't push this off on anybody else. It's you. And so the question becomes, will you submit your desires to the leading of the Holy Spirit? Or will you continue to let this war wage and give in to the desires of your flesh? Here's the cool part, in my opinion. You can deal with it directly. Now, you don't got any control over that person driving and texting in their car, swerving into your lane. But you got complete control over yourself driving and texting and swerving into something. I'm not saying about driving and texting, but this is about the fact that you can correct this. So James is telling them, I'm, James is like, I have been in your face this whole book, this whole letter, trying to convince you, trying to get your attention, but you have control. I'm not putting on you something that you can't bear. I'm telling you all of these facts simply because you can change them. If you couldn't change them, I'd be wasting my time. If you had no control, he'd be wasting his time. If we couldn't make decisions like this, we shouldn't even be sitting here in this church. Because we would be left to to things outside of our lives that would rule us and we would have no control. But we've got complete control. We get to make the decision. Thanks be to God for that because we can get out of those situations. Quit going ahead of me. Thank you. Verse 2. Now verse 2 is the verse I call Brother Kilman about more than anything. But verse 2 reads as though it is dressed to unbelievers. When I read verse 2, I thought, how in the world could this be happening? I'm like, is he really James? Are you seriously talking to people that are filled with your spirit and that are supposed, this newly converts? Not only that, James, are you talking to people that have been ran out of their homes and their country because of their faith in this? So they were willing to give those things up and now we find them in this situation? And that's right, it's exactly who he's talking to. He says, you lust and have not. You kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight in war, yet ye have not, because you ask not. You lust, the lusts are ruling your life. You kill. Now here, I'll just go ahead and share with you my whole inner struggle right here on this. James is using direct language. And then we're going to hop right off this. But i got to say this because I want Brother Kilman to come up to me afterwards and say, Juan, this is why. I need, that, I need that satisfaction. Kill here. One writer, two writers, and one historian says that that literally was people dying from the wars and the battles they were in. That's what I was agreeing with until I called Brother Kilman and I got the 72-page email. So when that took place, I started looking more, and I thank you for that, Brother Kilman, because that's the second time I have looked at some very reputable sources, studied it, came up to an agreement, looked at it, it made perfect sense, everything aligned, and then, I, and then all of a sudden I get knocked off the horse, and I'm like, oh, well, how in the world did that happen? Well, it happens. So apparently you just need to call Brother Kilman. You lust, you have not, and you kill. So I'm assuming that this kill is a direct word. It is meaning what he is saying, right? Because he's talking about lust, he's talking about desiring, he's talking about fighting and warring, and all of those are direct statements. That's what doesn't make sense. So why does this metaphorical or this 
allegorical, whatever you want to call it, language of kill come up in the middle of direct statements in the same verses. Do you want to shout it out? Do you have the answer right now off the top of your head? If you do, I want you to say it. <laughs> okay, because that drives me insane. The only thing I can think of, and this is what one writer said, it makes sense to me. He said, James is a horrible writer. He said, James is a preacher, a great preacher, but in writing it, he says, it just, it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense because he's throwing something as strong as kill in the middle of lust and desire. Brother Barkus, please. Yes. That's exactly what I think is going on. I think you're right on. I think these guys should have to figure that out for themselves because it took me three hours. <laughs> but thank you for knowing in just two minutes. <laughs> you lust and have not. You kill and desire to have. So that's what he's saying. He's saying you are lusting, desiring, you're warring. Your lust and your desires are causing you to war and to fight. And the damage, the hate that you have for your brother is might as well be killing people. You're destroying them. Listen to the point of how this kind of walks out. You're destroying them to the point of you, a heathen, somebody that's a non-believer approaches you and they want to, to hear you try to present your message, the gospel to them, and, and they don't partake of it. Well, now, how would you handle that? Well, Freddie, I think you handle that pretty well. You just kind of joke it off. You mess around with them. He walks away, avoids it, comes back again, and just reiterates the same thing. And that makes sense because you don't want to put the pressure on them that drives them away. But the Jews in the context that we're looking at, they were doing that. They were getting frustrated, upset. Their desires to want to be the leaders or to be powerful or to have possessions and gain were driving more people away than it was drawing them in. So this internal war becomes an external war. And it's causing all these problems around them. It never just stays inside of you. It never does. So if we're sitting and going through life and we're sitting in church service after church service and we're feeling that, that burn and that fight inside of us and, and we're sexualizing every woman that comes by or every guy that comes by or we're critiquing every person that preaches or we're critiquing every thought that comes out and all of these things are happening all inside of us, listen to me. James is saying, get that corrected now. Because it won't be long before that gets out. And once that gets out, you're going to start affecting other people. You're going to be damaging other lives does not stay in it will leak out get it taken care of beforehand why because you can you can fix it they covet great things for themselves and think to obtain them by their victories over the romans or by suppressing others among themselves but their labor and their their bloodshed or their fighting their their anger and hostility is in vain because they never find themselves satisfied by obtaining their desires by obtaining them so they're fighting they're pushing they're seeking something they're getting a hold of that but they're not finding satisfaction the words cannot obtain signify cannot gain the happiness sought after so james isn't saying you're doing all of this and you're not getting some of the things you want you're getting them you're grasping them getting a hold of them but you're finding out that it's not fulfilling you You've got a moment of gratification for completing your task, but you are not finding fulfill fulfillment. You're not finding happiness. What God wants for you, you are not finding there. The fulfillment of desire and passion does not, does not equal satisfaction. You can desire something in your heart. 
You can put all the effort you want into it, and you can obtain it, and it does not equal satisfaction. You're not guaranteed that by any means. Desires and passions derived through seeking the will of God always equal satisfaction. You let your desires, you seek God and let Him help plan your life, and then you put your energy into that and you accomplish that. And it's like you're, you're ten stories tall. You just feel on fire. You feel energy in that. You look around and you see people that you respect, uh, their walk with God and, and their uh, submission and how on fire they are and how great of a person they are. And you're going to find deep in that person that they have put their own desires aside for the desires that God has put in their heart. We're going to move into an example here. Desire itself is not evil. Biological desires such as food or sexual gratification are put there by God and are normal. Normal. Food, everybody's okay with food. When you saw sexual gratification, I could tell. Nobody wants to talk about it. Look, we're in our 20s. At what point do you want me to use a, a little third grade illustration? Sexual gratification are put there by God. A desire for the opposite sex is implanted in us by God. It's when we take the natural desire obtained by God and use it for pleasure outside of God's approval that it becomes evil and you are not fulfilled. Point being this, you can have a desire that God put in your heart. You can exploit it and obtain it in a way that's not okay with God and get one result. Take that same desire Take that same desire and don't exploit it and use it the way God intended and it is the most beautiful thing on earth. Take it this way. Talk to somebody, some teenager, some young person. We have teenagers pregnant everywhere. Everywhere. Why are they pregnant? Because they succumb to a desire within them that God put in their lives that they turn to something that was evil. They didn't wait until marriage. So you talk to that person and you find out how they felt about giving themselves away and, and the fact that they're no longer even dating that person, the fact that that person's not even around anymore, and maybe they got pregnant and now they're raising a child on their own. Ask that person how that felt. It's completely different than the person that waited until they were married the way that God intended. The same desire brought out in our lives two different ways, are on the opposite ends of the spectrum. I hit the button too many times. Watch this. You ask not. You don't pray. James saying you don't pray, you do not consult God. You do not commit your way to Him and make known your request to Him, but follow your own corrupt views and inclinations. And here's my question. James didn't ask this one. Now I get to ask a question. Why not? Is it because they didn't want to talk to God? Let me hear your thought. What do you think? Why would they not pray? Why would they not seek God? Or freely you're on the spot. Watch your answer. Don't get ahead of the lesson, man. What are you doing? Maybe they didn't get the answer they wanted. That was where he, kind of where he was heading towards the end of it. You know, I would hate it if I was sitting out there and somebody was asking me questions like I'm asking you guys questions. Carnal? 
carnality. Yeah, yeah, that could be it. Anybody else? Any thoughts? Ashamed? <laughs> yeah. Oh, man, someone should teach one day on guilt and the weight of guilt because that will ruin your life and your chances of getting back to God are just drastically shortened. Okay, why not? Here's why I think why not. I don't think it wasn't so much that they didn't want to talk to God because as we move a little forward, we find out that they were doing some talking to God. But I think it's that they didn't want to hear from God. So you got people all the time that are willing to just spout out their thoughts and their opinions to God and to, to just tell Him how they want to see things done and what's going to take place in their lives. But prayer is not just, this is getting confusing, because prayer is not just you talking to God. It's not walking in and, and, and pulling back the curtain and sitting down with the priest on the other side and you just confessing things. It's not God up in the sky and you just pouring out your, your, your sins and your shortcomings. But what prayer does, prayer opens up this channel. And it's a channel of communication where you can speak to God and God can speak to you. You could call it a highway. But if we call it a highway, it's certainly not a one-way highway. So prayer becomes this highway to God, which you can get to Him and He can get to you. And so people are easy to want to say, well, God, this is what's going on, this stupid thing. I can't believe this guy and I can't believe this happened at work and I can't believe that happened and... Uh, and you walk out and you're done. And that kind of prayer, as we'll find out as we move forward, gets you nowhere. But when you really come to God and you seek God, and you really ask Him for things that are, that are okay with Him, and things that are going to benefit His kingdom and help your walk with Him, if you're praying for a job to bless you and for you to make financial gain, and you haven't paid your tithes in three years, shame on you. Okay? I wouldn't deserve financial blessing in that situation. I shouldn't even be asking for it. But if I haven't paid my tithes in three years, and my heart gets broken, and God gets a hold of me, and I go to Him in prayer, and I say, Lord, I need help on my job. I need more money. I need to be blessed. I need to get my bills caught up. And I haven't paid you in tithes, but I am going to start paying you on time every time. You're getting it first, God. This is my commitment. Well, that's totally different. That's saying, God, I've messed up, which He already knows I do that all the time. I mess up all the time, but I'm telling you, God, that I need your help, and I want to make this right. I know this belongs to you. I want to give this to you. And you pray in that kind of way, and that just opens that door up. That opens that channel, and God starts dealing with you. And now he gets to direct your life. Now, you still get to choose if you want to listen, but at least you get to hear from him. This other type of prayer, this other type of communication, you don't even hear. You don't get to know his thoughts. How do you make moves in the way that God would make moves if He doesn't speak to you? If we don't read His Word? If we're not sure what He would even want us to do? Well, I think God would want me to do this. You know how many times I hear that? I think this is what God would want. Why do you think you have the Word to study and you have prayer anytime you need it? Talk to Him. Let Him show you what He would want you to do. Let Him move on your heart and give you direction. Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says this, Be careful for nothing but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, look what happens, the peace of God, which passes all understanding. You don't understand this. It doesn't make sense to you. You may not get this, but it passes all understanding. Shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. That's the kind of answers we want. That's the kind of help we want. That's the kind of prayer we want to make. 
3. You ask and receive not because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your lusts. Your lusts spoil your prayers and make them an abomination to God. We got a little ahead on the last slide, but that's what it's coming down to. If you're praying for something to be given to you or to help you, and you're choosing to use that only for self-gratification or to build up yourself, God doesn't honor that. He has no obligation to that, to answer that prayer. You ask for worldly prosperity that you may employ it in riotous living, that you may expand it upon your pleasures. What we need to ask Him to give us is more desire for what He promises and commands. You know, that, that, that just makes it so simple. God, I'm not even sure what to pray for. But I know that you told me you would never leave me or forsake me. So, Lord, I'm just asking you to be with me. I'm asking you to provide for me. I know that there's animals and there's birds and you provide shelter and you provide food for them. And so how could I think that I was any less in your eyes? So I don't know how to ask for this, God. Remember Solomon? We don't even have time. We're going to run out. But he had the opportunity to ask for anything. God said, ask of me what you will. Anything. And he says, God, just give me the wisdom to lead this great people. And God said, you know what? You got that. You got wisdom. Your heart's right, Solomon. And now because you've got that and you didn't ask for riches, long life, and the death of your enemies, I'm going to give you riches. You will be blessed beyond anybody that's ever been before you and anybody that will ever come after you. God knows what's best for us. You see, people get a little bit afraid and we're like, man, I don't want to pray about that. If I start praying and really asking God to speak to me, you know what happens? He speaks to me. And then I'll feel guilty when I don't listen because he may ask me to move to Africa and be a missionary. He might ask me to donate $1,000 from my tax check. He may ask me to spend some time on a bread run. He may ask me to spend time cleaning the church. Gosh, man, you know what? If we take that step and start praying, only God knows what he's going to ask us to do. That's what he's wanting us to do. Nature of the choice. The adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Strong language. It is a forsaking of him to whom we are devoted and espoused to cleave to other things. There is this brand put upon worldly mindliness, mindness that it is enmity with God. Can you imagine that? To be an enemy of God. An enemy of God. Now when I think of enemies of God, you know who comes to mind? Satan. It's the first thing that comes to mind, and really the only thing that comes to my mind. Satan, sin. And I tell you what, when I think about putting myself on the same level as Satan, as sin, Lumping myself together with him in the eyes of God? It's scary. Man, I don't want to do that, but you know what? We go through these pleasures and these pleasure-seeking moments and these times where we just want to fulfill our own desires and we never even think about that. God, how do I look in your eyes right now? This is how you look. I see Satan, I see sin, and I see you. I see my people, and I see you, God. Not you, God, but Satan and sin. I see destruction. I see my enemies. Wouldn't want to be that guy. Spiritual adultery has taken place. We belong to the Lord as a husband or wife to their spouse. We are bought with a price. We belong to Him. 
You wouldn't leave your spouse. You wouldn't divorce your spouse because you had a little bit of an argument or because he didn't take out the trash two weeks in a row. Right, it's good stuff, ain't it, babe? You wouldn't divorce him for that. Hopefully not. And how much more is the greater relationship between you and your God? You're espoused to him. You belong to him. The real issue is whom will I love? God or the world? No one likes to put it. I don't even like reading that. Because that means when I'm falling outside of the things I should be doing, my heart is drawn towards the inclination of the world instead of God. I don't like that. I don't like thinking about that. I like to think when I fall that it's just a little stumble. I didn't do anything wrong. wasn't really anything on my part. I like to feel that way. But it's not the truth. I don't want to create some lie or some world to live in that doesn't exist because it really is our fault. We really do get to choose. Do we want to love God or the world? Do you think that the Scripture saith in vain, the Spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy. Now, I took, I stole from, from a few people uh, what I felt like was a really good interpretation of this verse and rewritten. Because this verse is very difficult, in my opinion, just to read and understand. I'm not sure what he was saying. In this verse, James gave scriptural support for what he just asserted to in verse 4. However, he didn't do it with a particular verse, but evidently summarized the scriptural teaching on God's jealousy. We've got a list there. Here's what I think was a very good translation. I mean, he's not trying to translate. He's trying to help us understand better. He wasn't jumping off the boat. He's on the boat still. Do you suppose that the scriptures mean nothing when they speak of the Spirit of God dwelling in you as requiring absolute rule in your hearts and longing eagerly after you? Here's another one. Do you think that the scriptures speak to no purpose when they tell you that God requires your heart in a way which can only be described by saying that his spirit longeth after you with jealousy? The spirit that he put in them, his spirit that he put in them is longing and envying after them. He doesn't want them getting away. He's a jealous God. We've read that and all these verses point to that there. That he longs for you, he desires you, he wants you. That spirit that he put in within you, he didn't just put it there for not, it serves a purpose. It is trying to control you and consume you. It wants that. It wants to do that. This also served in this type of, of writing as a reminder that what they needed to overcome, they already had. Now that's awesome to me. Because you look at problems and how can I get out of this? You look at yourself and how can I finally get things better? Will I really be forgiven? Can I really accomplish these things? Other people have done it, but can I do it? And he's saying, listen, I put my spirit in you. And it is capable. It is longing after you, desiring after you. And if you yield to it, no question, yield to it. We're going to pull this train around, baby. It's going to make it. You're going to get on the right track. If you don't yield to it, well, then you just have to accept the opposite. But if you do... If you do, man, it's going to make it right. God's Spirit living within them. He was reminding them that they had what they needed already within them. Last verse. But he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Resisteth the proud and give grace to the humble. Humility is the solution. 
the proud, proud of no room for grace. All right. But the humble have all they need. Proud people can't receive grace. Grace is open to everybody, but proud people don't receive it. Humble people, somebody that's humble before God gets a piece of that grace, and that grace will carry you through. For to him that has and uses what he has a right, more shall be given. That's that more grace. If you got it, you're using it, you're walking in it, you will always have what you need. He will especially give more grace to the humble because they see their need of it. A humble person recognizes that they need the grace of God. They will pray for it. They will seek after it, long after it. Forget my desires. I want your grace in my life, God. And such will be thankful for it, and they will have it. God will provide it. So, Lord, I just ask you as we go on our our day today and throughout our week this week, we have been studying this book, and we are blessed to hear your word, Lord. And we just ask you to be with us. You help us, God, because I know, I know that this is what we fight more than anything else, our self-desires and pleasures. Help the words that James wrote to the Jews be alive in our hearts. Help them remind us, God, to put away our own desires and selfish acts and seek your glory and your ways, to follow you in everything that we do, not to be afraid of what you might ask of us, because you will never put more on us than we can bear. You will always, always go before us when we seek your face, God. Thank you, Lord, for this. We are not alone. And we will give you the glory all the days, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.